their evil for what it is, and they don't like it. We do not know who the author of this psalm is. However, here is what we do learn. The righteous can learn with some understanding of the times and receive encouragement for the hour. Psalm 93 does not have an author, and many believe it's the same author, or does not have uh, the author's signature here. We don't know who wrote 93 either. Some believe it is the same author that wrote both of them. But in Psalm 93, the psalmist recognizes the sovereignty of God in all affairs. He is the creator God. He is in control. He owns all, and he is over all. Then we come to Psalm 94, and he asks the most perplexing question that the righteous often ask how long will the wicked prevail before God will judge them with that understanding let's look at verse 1 and if you're able to stand for the reading of God's word I invite you to stand while I read Psalm 94 beginning with verse 1 O Lord God to whom vengeance belongeth O God, to whom vengeance belongeth, show thyself. Lift up thyself, thou judge of the earth. Render a reward to the proud. Lord, how long shall the wicked, how long shall the wicked triumph? How long shall they utter and speak hard things? And all the workers of iniquity boast themselves. They break in pieces thy people, O Lord, and afflict thine heritage. They slay the widow and the stranger and murder the fatherless. Yet they say, the Lord shall not see, neither shall the God of Jacob regard it. Understand ye brutish among the people and ye fools, when will ye be wise? He that planted the ear, shall he not hear? He that formed the eye, shall he not see? He that chastiseth the heathen, shall not he correct? He that teacheth man knowledge, shall not he know? The Lord knoweth the thoughts of man, that they are vanity. Blessed is the man whom thou chasteneth, O Lord, and teachest him out of thy law, that they mayest give him rest from the days of adversity, until the pit be digged for the wicked. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. But judgment shall return unto the righteous, and all the upright in heart shall follow it. Who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. When I said, My foot slippeth, thy mercy, O Lord, held me up. In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Shall the throne of iniquity have fellowship with thee, which frameth mischief by a law? They gather themselves together against the soul of the righteous and condemn the innocent blood. But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. He shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. Father, we come to you this morning, and and what an incredible psalm. It seems that the history of man keeps repeating itself, and the need of the righteous continues. And so, Father, as we live in, in a declining and corrupting society, let us be encouraged from this passage.
by who our God is and what He can do for us through these times that we may continue to worship You and have a faithful, personal, intimate relationship with You. Help us, we ask, O God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. In this psalm, the psalmist begins by recognizing that God has the authority, He has the power, and He has the right to judge the wicked. No one has a greater right. Nobody has a greater power. No one will be more just than God. But he begins the the psalm in in verses 1 and 2. He says, Vengeance belongeth to you, O God. And so he understands that it is God that has the authority to do this. Uh, it is not about taking one or two evil persons out because in a, in a widely corrupted and wicked society, you can say, boy, if we just had a different person in this leadership position, if we just had a different person in this elected position. But you know what? You take that one out and another one replaces them. They're, they're, evil has become so intertwined in all of our culture that there is no shortage of evil people to take the place of that one at the head. And so this is not simply saying, Lord, you need to deal with that one person. It's talking about dealing with the evil culture at large, but it's not just some mystic at large. It's talking about every individual as persons that is developing and pursuing the wicked and the evil of society and promoting it and prevailing with it. It is asking God to deal with them. It is not a spirit of personal revenge. The psalmist, as I would understand, is not talking about, well, he took my house away from me, or he's taking all of my money through taxes away from me, or or they have uh, physically assaulted me, or, or they have put me in jail for an unjust cause. This is not simply a personal vindication or vindiction that he has against some individual. This is asking God to deal with evil at large. It is because he has such a sympathy with the righteousness of God and hates every evil way. You know, I like righteousness and I hate evil. When the most comfortable and the most relaxing places I can be is amongst God's people who want to walk with God. I mean, to me, that's absolutely enjoyable. I don't like to be in an environment of drunkenness and and drinking and vulgarity and, and that kind of stuff. I like to be with God's people that that know how to control the tongue and not only know how to control it, but they don't like vulgarity coming out of their mouth. It's nice to be with people. I sympathize with that. I like that. And you know what? People with corrupt communications would never be comfortable in heaven because that will not be permitted. That will be over with. Um, And I don't even like being close to it. Last night, uh, just before I went to bed, and it was sometime after 9 o'clock, uh, I had come back to my uh, office on the uh, south end of the house, uh, 
And as I was coming back, it almost sounded like there was a TV or something blaring in my office. And I thought, that can't be. I don't even have anything like that in there. And I walked in and trying to figure out, and it was coming through that south window. And I thought, what on earth is this? So I kind of peeked through the shade, and sure enough, the neighbor was out there with lights, planting a bunch of plants, and must have been listening to some audio book on, on an uh, uh, electronic device of some sort, had it cranked way up, so nearly the half the city of Loveland could hear it, <laughs> and especially I could hear it. And I thought, what is she listening to? And I listened a little bit, and that's all I cared for. The language was vulgar. It was horrible. And you know what? I didn't like it. You see, here's a man. Here's the author of this, that he likes righteousness. And he likes an environment of righteousness. And doesn't like the environment of the wicked and the unrighteous. And he's saying, Lord, we need you to deal with this. It is knowing that God said he would judge the wicked. And we're just ready for his long suffering to expire and his righteous justice to take hold. We've had enough. But then I, I am brought to my mind, I wonder when God had enough. <laughs> Probably a long time ago. And the reason he has not inflicted his justice or his wrath is because there's always a balance between that and his mercy and his long-suffering. It's beyond our comprehension who our God is in many ways. This is not intended to be a theme verse for pacifism. He is not saying, okay, yes, God, I know it is. you deal with vengeance, and I am not to deal with revenge. And that is true. This is not saying that we just sit back and let the wicked take over society, take over the government, take over the county, take over the state, take over the, the local issues. It's not saying that we just sit back and do that. I believe we find evidence in the Word of God that commands us that the righteous ought to do everything possible that God will enable us to do to restrain evil and promote righteousness. But here there are some times when evil has become so prevailing and has taken over so much that our options of minimizing evil in our society have diminished and evaporated out of our hands to where we have to ask God to intervene because we really can't do much to stop it. This is the psalmist. No doubt he would have said something, would do something, but it was beyond his control to really be a curbing of the evil and needed God to intervene. Which leads us to the perplexing question of the righteous. How long shall the wicked triumph? In verse 1 and 2, he's asking God to deal with it. In verse 3 and 4, uh, or he's saying God can deal with it. In verse 3 and 4, he's asking how long, God, before you will deal with it. It is a time factor. For you see, a day under the tyranny of evil can seem like a lifetime of darkness 
and oppression. And for those that love righteousness and hate every evil way, even an hour of darkness is a taste of eternity. And he's saying, God, how long? And not not only that, but probably has witnessed or observed the agony that other righteous people have suffered. And probably not only that, but the violence and the agony that people at large have incurred. We understand in in areas in New York City and Chicago and other places, violence is out the roof. And a, a lot of the victims are evil people. Not all of them, but they're party of it. But when we hear and see what goes on, it hurts our heart to see them have to suffer such violence because of the evil that is there. And so undoubtedly he had seen all of this. And how long, God, until you deal with it? But this brings me to one more question. You see, when evil gets so bad that it's like that, the question that I raise is, how does a society of people find itself in such a dark and evil condition? Now, do understand the author of this psalm is undoubtedly a Jewish author. He is a child of God. He is probably a child of Israel, a part of the people of Israel. And how did Israel become so evil to where somebody would cry out like this? From the call of Abraham to the deliverance by Moses and beyond, they were the people of the one true God. They believed and and worshipped the one true creator God. And God had given them a perfect set of laws and justice. In fact, it is said, there is no nation that has such such great statues and judgments and laws and, and rules as all of the world as what God has given Israel. And when you look at it, it was a perfect set of laws. It was a perfect uh, system of justice, of, of punishing for the consequences of evil and rewarding those who did right. You will never find another set of laws that will match or exceed what God gave the children of Israel. And not only that, but the promises, if they would obey that, that there would be none of the diseases of of the pagans come upon them. No enemy could ever uh, be able to conquer them or even destroy them or, or cause them great grief. That their harvest would always be abundant, their, their uh, granaries would be full, their livestock would produce well, there would always be plenty of milk, plenty of fruit, if they would obey. But how did they become so evil? Under these precepts, righteousness would prevail, and evil would have been quickly punished. You go through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And he defined what is right and what is wrong. And he defined the consequences for disobedience and wrong and criminal behavior. All of it. 
and put it upon the people to exact it and as a stewardship to follow it. Oh, and incidentally, he did legislate morality. For whatever reason, there's this widespread thinking that, well, you can't legislate morality. Well, if you don't legislate morality, in essence, you legislate immorality. And we see what he did. By way of comparison, and, and this was the people of Israel in, in where they were at this time and what they were suffering. How did they go from such a great nation with great laws that promoted righteousness and punished wickedness? How did they go to where evil prevailed and controlled? I think we could ask the same question. How did America, which started with good laws, I'm not going to say perfect laws, as Israel had, but with very good laws. And the reason they were good laws is because many of those who wrote the laws of America spent their nights studying the Word of God to learn how to write the laws for a new type of a government as a constitutional republic. And we had good laws. But how has America become so evil today? To where evil is called good and good is called evil. And as it talks about in Psalm 94, that wickedness is legislated by law. That's not a new idea. It has been my observation. This happens when a society at large does not appreciate the strictness of righteous laws with its consequences. So they become comfortable with some evil without consequences. That very evil becomes a flourishing cancer until it overtakes the whole society and brings about its ultimate destruction. It doesn't happen overnight. Israel did not fall to its wicked demise overnight, but a progression of generations. America has not fallen to such corruption and and vileness overnight. It has been a progression from one generation to another. And let me repeat what I said. When a society at large did not appreciate the strictness of righteous laws with its consequences, so they become comfortable with some evil without consequences. And that evil becomes a flourishing cancer until it overtakes the whole society and brings about its ultimate death. I ask myself, how can I tell whether I have been party to such a demise in our country? My answer is this. Do I appreciate the strictness of God's righteous laws? Or do I think that God's just a little too rigid in His ways? You see, that was the problem when the demise began. So here's the psalmist with his plight. Society had become overwhelmingly evil. Not only had they become a violent society, but they were targeting the destruction of the righteous. Such evil oppression leads one to question by the righteous, verse 16, who will rise up for me against the evildoers? Who will stand between me and the wicked? Who's going to protect me? 
You see, when laws cease to matter in a country and justice is unpredictable and judgments are unpredictable, then who will stand there to protect me and defend me? Who will be there for me? Who will rise up for me against the evildoer? Or who will stand up for me against the workers of iniquity? Well, that brought him to this question and to this answer. He is not talking about preparing sufficient food, silver, or preserving the body. Now, folks, I'm not speaking against understanding how to prepare for an economy that may collapse, putting together food, putting together some means of financial bartering and trading and buying. How do you take care of the body and preserve the health of your body? This is not speaking against that. That we ought to be considering and, and dealing with. But what he's talking about here is how do we survive mentally and emotionally to continue in the Lord? You, you can do all of the work that would be wise in preparing yourself with food and things like that. You can do all of the things that, with the knowledge that you have that is wise economically with your finances. But you know, in the process of all of that, we can become very worrisome. We can become very troubled. We can become very distraught. And so what he is addressing is how do we protect our soul? Now the term soul it has to do with our mind, which is our thought life, our emotions, our conscience, and our will, and that of making choices. And he says, unless the Lord had been my help, my soul had almost dwelt in silence. We're talking either death physical death or most likely depression that leads to silence discouragement that leads to silence and withdrawal how do I handle this there's a lot of wicked people who are mentally disturbed and I think that's quite evident but I believe there are many righteous who are quite distraught over the affairs of the times and what's going on, and it's for a much different reason. I want you to look at some scriptures here. Turn with me to Isaiah, Isaiah 26. And you will find in here that he's dealing with the thought life and with the emotions. And how do we deal with this? In Isaiah 26, verse 3, the prophet said, Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose, I'm going to get your help there, Whose what? Mind. That's your thought life. Is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Trust ye in the Lord forever, for in the Lord Jehovah is everlasting strength. Now turn with me to John. The Gospel of John in chapter 14. The Gospel of John in chapter 14. Verse 27. <clears throat> And 
I'll stop and have you read a word when I get there, so be ready for me this morning. John 14 and verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. You see, we're talking about when all the evil takes place and they they begin to take control and they prevail and and persecute and, and all that goes on. Let not your heart be troubled because we're inclined to have troubled hearts. One more, Philippians. Philippians chapter 4. And beginning with verse 7. Philippians 4, verse 7, And the peace of God which passeth all understanding. That's talking about having a peace in our heart today and now, even in the midst of all of the adversity. (coughs) Understand, this was written by the Apostle Paul, who had faced as much adversity as almost any Christian could ever face. He talks about having been stoned, having been whipped, having been run out of town, having been ostracized. I mean, the list of physical abuses as well as the slander and everything else is as big a list as any believer will ever experience. And he's telling us how we can have a peace of heart that passes all understanding that this world cannot take away from us. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and... Minds, there's your thought life through Christ Jesus. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things <coughs> are lovely, and whatsoever things are of a good report, and if there be any virtue, and if there be any praise, He's giving us the criteria. For that very next word, what is it? Think. Your thought life. You see, just as we have to control the rest of our body, we need to bring our thought life under discipline. Think on these things. So when we face these adverse, very difficult times, we have to determine what we're going to focus on in our thought life. We're not talking about putting our heads in the sand as though nothing wrong is going on. It's knowing the times, understanding the times, but choosing where we will put our focus in our thought life. In verse 13, let's go back to Psalm 94. In verse 13, Psalm 94, I have a list of some things to focus on in your thought life. The first one in verse 13, that thou mayest give him rest from the days of adversity until the pit be digged for the wicked. The first thing that I learn of how to focus is that the Lord would give rest from the days of adversity. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 10, 13. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. As believers in Christ, we have something that the lost do not have. We have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. 
we also have the Word of God that has been finished and complete. We know the end of the story of how it's all going to end. We know that we have our God that can help us. And here it says, here's what he has told us. Here's what he has promised in verse 13. There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. And do understand, whatever adversity that you are facing, whatever struggle you are facing, you're not the first one to to deal with it. Now, I'm not minimizing your struggle because it's personal. But sometimes we can begin to think I'm the only one that's ever had to deal with this. Nobody could ever understand me. Well, there may be some other people that won't understand you or can't understand you, but God does. And there's others that's been down that same road, and they can testify that God makes a way of escape. And that God is faithful. It says, There hath no temptation taken you, but such as is common to man. But God is faithful, who will not suffer you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will with the temptation also make a way to escape, that ye may be able to bear it. Whatever adversity that you are enduring, and even as it tries to attack your thought life, understand that God will not give you more than what he will equip you to bear. And put alongside that one of the greatest purposes that God has for you and I as believers is to glorify our God. And so no matter what we face, whatever we experience, whatever we have to endure, God has given us an opportunity to glorify Him through this right now. And He will not give us more than we can endure but will provide a way of escape. And then verse 14 of Psalm 94. For the Lord will not cast off his people, neither will he forsake his inheritance. We can have an absolute confidence that the Lord will not cast us off. We read in the Bible that God cannot lie and that God does not change. Now some of us may make promises... And because of failure in our character, we may fail to keep that promise. Or some of us may make promises, and with all good intent, with all of our ability, we'll do what we can to keep that promise. But sometimes circumstances are beyond our ability to where we cannot keep that promise. No matter how sincere and how badly we try. But do understand this, when God makes a promise... He knows knows that he is strong enough, capable enough, and there is nothing that will impede him from fulfilling that promise. And it says here that the Lord will not cast us off. Go to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, and in verse 5 we read, Let your conversation be without covetousness. And being content with such things as ye have. For he hath said, I will never leave thee, nor forsake thee. The key word there, never. Never. Underline it. Circle it. Take a light color and color it so it stands out. That's the promise of God. 
so that we may boldly say the Lord is my helper and I will not what? What man shall do unto me. You see, one of the reasons that we fear and have that problem is because we focus and we think on what the evil's going to do and what they might do to us. And he says, because God will never leave us, we do not need to fear what man can do to us. Christ said, it's one thing to fear the man that can hurt the body or kill you. But it is a much more important fear to fear him that is able to put you in the grave and then cast you into hell. There's not a man around, not a woman around, not a child around that can do that. And he will never leave you nor forsake you. Sometimes you're going to feel very alone. And you may find yourself in certain circles that you're the only one standing, especially as an elected official. You may feel like you're becoming the only one that's trying to stand for truth and righteousness. And it can be a very lonely thing to do that. You may feel like in your family and in your circle of, uh, 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 of, of acquaintances that you're the only one that is trying to do right and live for God. But you're not alone. God is always with you. Thirdly, in verse 18 of Psalm 94, we find something else that he recognizes. When I said, my foot slippeth, in other words, I'm starting to fall. Have you ever uh, started walking across? I've had this happen to me. I'm just walking across. I don't see that little patch of ice. And, I mean, I go through all kinds of physical gymnastics, but I manage to stay up somehow. I may pull a muscle in the process, but it's almost like my feet are about to go out from under me. And, and you just go like this way and that way. And you get on the other side of the ice and you happen to stand up. Well, that may be what he is thinking. My foot slippeth. I'm about to fall. But before I hit the ground, and, and unless I hit the ground, thy mercies, O Lord, held me up. And I thought, what does mercies have to do with it? His mercies held me up? I come to this conclusion. Here is a man that understood that all of the goodness that God gives us, we don't deserve. You know, sometimes when we... We start, as, as Paul said in Corinthians, that we ought not to compare ourselves among ourselves or by ourselves. Sometimes as we walk with God and we love righteousness and hate evil, we begin comparing ourselves against the wicked. And we start seeing ourselves as pretty good and that God owes me a better path in life. And here the psalmist, in the midst of all of this, realizes that the goodness of God that we do receive is the fruit of the mercy of God. We, what he has withheld from us, we don't even deserve that. And, and so even as he comes, we, we, we can come to God demanding and asking and, and wishing he would do something especially with the wicked. 
But let us temper our spirit with an understanding that it's because of God's mercies that we have that privilege to come to God. And so here's a man that in the midst of understanding what God has given, not only has he given us a place of rest, he will never leave us nor forsake us, but we have this because he is a merciful God. Have you ever noticed how sometimes somebody's greatest strength can be the point of your greatest frustration? That the, the strength, uh, and many times this, this happens with couples when you're brought together and, and husband and wife and, and uh, there was this great strength that, that you just really admired. But then when the longer you see how it works, there's sometimes about that strength that frustrates the fire out of you. I have my strengths. I have my weakness. And sometimes my strengths that Billy admired in bringing us together to marry, sometimes my strengths can be frustrating to her. And likewise, some of the great strengths that, that I so admired about Mrs. Miller before we were married, after we were married, it's like, ugh, <laughs> it can frustrate me at times. Ah, you chuckle, you know what I'm talking about. But do you know what? Here it is. It is God's mercy. And because God is merciful, He has not cast us into hell. He has not judged us with the justice that we deserve. Out of His grace, He has given us salvation. And He is withheld by mercy that is from everlasting to everlasting. His mercy gave us opportunity and has given us and withheld from us those great things. And it is that mercy, that very mercy, that, that is uh, intertwined with God's long-suffering, that He gives the wicked a little longer to come to their knees in repentance. Aren't we all glad that God gave us a little longer to come to repentance? And so he, He's reminded of that very truth. Lamentations chapter 3 speaks of the mercies of God. Lamentation, chapter 3, verse 22. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because His compassion fail not. I am presuming the psalmist grasped that when he wrote that verse. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. In another psalm, it says that his mercies endure forever. The Lord is my portion, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. It's rooted in knowing the mercies of God. This prophet has hope. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeketh him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And so, yes, the third thing was understanding the mercies of God. Verse 19, we read, In the multitude of my thoughts within me, thy comforts delight my soul. Wow. Here's our thought life. It is attacked with all of, of the oppression and all of the ways and everything that the wicked is doing. 
And it can be a little fearful. It can be absolutely frustrating. But he says, as my thought life works, it's the comforts of God that is my anchor to hold me on. I don't have time to read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 3 through 7. But it basically says that he is the God of all comfort that comforteth us in any tribulation that we may comfort others. And he goes on to write and encourage to find your consolation and your comfort in God. I don't know how you define comfort, but comfort gives you peace of mind in the times of adversity because you're trusting God. And he gives you a peace of mind that comforts you. And he said, in the multitude of my thoughts, and folks, because we are exposed to all of the wickedness or much of the wickedness, it impacts how we think. But in the midst of that, let the comforts of God take over and begin to be the focus of your thought life. In verse 22, he said, But the Lord is my defense, and my God is the rock of my refuge. He is our defense. We will find that uh, our God has an only begotten Son, who when He ascended to the right hand of the Father, is ever making intercession on our behalf. And he's never lost a case. And so we have him as our defense. And not only that, but also our rock of refuge. Psalm 46. Mark that down. Go back and read Psalm 46 of how God is our refuge. And then verse 23. And he shall bring upon them their own iniquity and shall cut them off in their own wickedness. Yea, the Lord our God shall cut them off. Sooner or later they're going to reap what they've sown. Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. God does, in His timing, reward every man according to His works. In God's time, the wicked will be cut off. And in one place it says, and that without remedy. What a tragedy. But righteousness will prevail and wickedness will fail. As I said, this psalm is not a treaty of pacifism. I believe the righteous should do whatever God enables us to do to be a deterrent to evil and promote righteousness in our communities. But this psalm is a psalm of the mental and emotional encouragement for the days of evil and adversity. It is easy for the evil of the days to overwhelm the focus of our thinking and thereby negatively impact our emotions, causing us to make bad choices. It is a reminder that God is in control, that He will judge the wicked and the pit is being dug as we speak. In the meantime, remember, God is our refuge and a very present help. He will give you comfort. And He is the rest for your soul. Again, let me rehearse Isaiah 26.3. Thou wilt keep Him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because He trusteth in thee. Folks, trust in God. And He will give you perfect peace. 
Where will you focus your thought life in the midst of all that we face? And what will influence your perspective of life itself and how you live? Paul said in Philippians, think on these things. Father, we thank you for this great psalm. A psalm of encouragement, a psalm of hope. Because, Lord, we do live in adverse times. The wicked are just rising and rising and prevailing. And, and uh, they, they are making laws of evil. Let us not forget that you are our defense. You are our comfort. In you is a place of rest and encouragement. You are our strength. And in God's perfect timing, the wicked will be judged. In the meantime, let us be ambassadors of our Heavenly Father. Let us be faithful to declare God's glorious salvation, the gospel message. Because, Father, if we become overwhelmed in our thought life about the wicked, we will become impotent to share the gospel. Strengthen us, we pray, in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Foothills Baptist Gospel Hour. For more information about Foothills Baptist Church of Loveland, Colorado, you may visit our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com. If you wish to donate to this radio ministry, please make your check payable to Foothills Baptist Church and mail to P.O. Box 771, Loveland, Colorado, 80539. Or you may go to our website at foothillsbaptistchurch.com and click on the Give tab. We would love to have you visit our regular Sunday services with morning worship at 9.30, Sunday school at 10.50, and Sunday evening at 5 o'clock. And until we meet again, be sure you are...
financial advisor are you looking for? A lot of advisors work for some great companies that offer good products, but are they taking a close look at what truly matters to you? Most advisors are unfortunately one-trick ponies and come at you with the same strategy no matter what situation you are in. Most of the time, your advisor isn't even reaching out to you to review things and has no desire to actually build a relationship with you. You want to work with someone who's going to hustle their butt off and compete for you and make sure that you are maximizing your hard-earned dollars. I will work day and night for all of my clients and do everything in my power to deliver the best service possible. Reach out to me, Joey Jaquin, Joe Jaquin, 
Lawrence son, someone who is going to compete for your business and truly aligns with your conservative values. You can reach me at my personal cell, 602-909-9048. Again, 602-909-9048. Hi, folks. I'm James Morgan, a realtor with Grisham & Associates, LLC. I know it must seem like there's a million realtors out there making all kinds of promises. Want to hear my big marketing promise? I promise honest and fair dealings with all those I do business with. That may sound old-fashioned, and it is not very catchy, but it is true. I am your Colorado real estate specialist. Farmland, mountain cabins, or urban dwellings. When you work with my team, we'll get the right property for you and be upfront and honest with you every step of the way. Over the years, my clients have told me just that fact alone separates us from others in the industry. If you are considering buying or selling real estate, call me, James Morgan, at 720-203-0731 or visit my website at coloradoproperties.online. No catchy slogan, just a client-first, honest real estate experience. Hit it, girls. Keep listening to the American Freedom Network. Looks like you've been sleeping well. Megan! He's back! The my pillow guy! And you're looking good! I'm still feeling good! Well, just when you thought it couldn't get any better, we've got the best pillow ever! My pillow 2.0! The best sleep just got even better. Whether you have a my pillow or not, you need to get the brand new My Pillow 2.0. Call or go to mypillow.com now. Use your promo code KHNC. And for a limited time when you buy one, you'll get a second one absolutely free. As 1360 continues to grow, we want to know what our listeners think. Tell us what you like. Tell us what you don't like. Give us your feedback. Go to 1360KHNC.com and hit the contact button and give us your thoughts. Hi, this is Riley with Saddle Up in Gilcrest, Colorado. We are a Western saddle and tack shop, and we carry all the tried and true cowboy and equine brands in the industry. We carry brands such as McCall, Martin, and Billy Cook. We also carry a variety of horse tack items like saddle pads, head stalls, and much more. Visit our website to check out our whole catalog or visit us in store, 303-772-7821. Again, 303-772-7821. Hey, Joe Giganti, host of the regular Joe Show. Together we'll tackle the hottest topics, be it politics, entertainment, or the culture, unapologetically through the lens of true conservatism. Weekday morning, starting at 7 on KHNC 1360, The Roar of the Rockies. You're listening to The Roar of the Rockies, KHNC 1360 AM, Johnstown, Greeley, Loveland, Fort Collins. The views and opinions expressed on 1360 KHNC.